Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Welcome, everyone, to part two of the off-season questions show. On part one, Alex Gruskin and I went through the highest-ranked players in the world and uh, answered what we feel is the essential, or at least what I feel, is the essential question for them as 2023 has wrapped up and we look ahead to the 2024 tennis year. Part two... It will pick up where we left off in terms of going uh, from highest ranked to lower ranked. Uh, but at the end, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of interest in these guys, we're going to cover Rafael Nadal and Nick Kyrgios. So here it is, part two of our off-season questions, Monday Match Analysis. Number 13, Tommy Paul. Started the year with the Australian Open semifinal and... Um, you know, there were questions about, okay, is this the breakthrough? What kind of noise can he make this year? It ended up being, with the exception of the Alcaraz matches over the summer, it ended up being like kind of a, a year that felt lukewarm based on the expectations that he set early on. But it was also a really, really great year. And, you know, he, he was a top 15 player. And hardcore, he showed flashes of having a top 10 level. My question for Tommy Paul, very specific, does he have top 10 racket talent? Because uh, we, we know athletically... He's as good as it gets, like elite athletically. Um, I just don't know that he has top 10 racket talent. So shameless plug here. We did our State of the Union podcast, American Men, with Ben Rothenberg. This was a topic I explored with him as well. And the question is, Shelton Corda not included in this part of the conversation. Of the original core, Fritz, Tiafo, Opelka, and Tommy Paul. Don't you come out of 2023 saying Tommy for the first time probably has the highest upside of the group because I do think he has top 10 racket talent. I look at the way he hits the kick serve. I look at the way he volleys so comfortably and fluidly, the way he absorbs pace so easily on his backhand wing, the way he has managed to turn his forehand into a weapon when he is playing his most aggressive tennis, the way he is comfortable playing Alcaraz forehands cross because, again, he has that athletic ability, that strength to absorb that sort of pace. The drop shots are there. The feel are, is there. Again, for Tommy... The problem, much like a whole Garuna, is this is a guy who can do everything. What does he do best to make life easiest for himself moving forward? I think the serve-forehand combination has become his playbook to doing so. You're right. There's a little bit of meat left on the bone for him in those post-Australian Open slam results. But that's the question I flip back onto you, is of those th four guys. And by the way, I was looking back at Opelka's 2022. He was really good. The he first was. two and a half months before getting injured. 
But does Tommy have the highest upside of those four guys in your mind now? It's tied, to be honest. I think his upside and Taylor's upside are, are basically the same. But both uh, above Francis. And Francis is similar too, uh, but probably just a little bit lower. Yeah, uh, but the, the point is they're very close. But, you know, look, uh, Taylor will never be what Tommy is athletically, and Tommy will never hit forehands and backhands as well as Taylor, period. Very true. Um, or serves, okay. for what it's worth. True, yes, which is a, a shot I actually – I kind of want a little bit more out of Tommy. I think if he's going to make that leap, probably it's going to happen just with the serve and with the forehand, which is kind if of you, why I, I went with that his question. His kick serve, you would quit. You'd just be like, I'm done. Right, I love his kick through. serve, but you can't, you can't, that you can't thing make hay. Yeah, but put that on the LMU courts, and you're talking like, i just be like, dude, why are we even playing? Like, I know, but that's that. us. You can't make hay on the tour. Dude, my ability to serve. cover the kick serve, I think Tommy, I think I could return one out of 10 Tommy kick serves. Like, that's legitimate because I return the kick serve into the backhand. I take it a little early. I think if that's, if I'm ever going to connect on a Tommy return, that's the one. Anyways, true or false? That you would connect on one. One out of 10. I, I didn't say seven out of 10. I said one. You know he's hitting a kick serve? Then yes. I mean, yeah, if I know, I have if to you know. know. Well, if he beats BT, I mean, he's beating me. <laughs> oh, no. Like, yeah. no, no, you yeah. can't just slide her. Like, that's not fair. Yeah. If, if you not know the objective it's, here. If you know it's kick wide, you'll be able to return one out of 10. I'm, I'm giving you that. All right. Yeah. Uh, that position. Yes. I'm sure you can feel great about yourself. I love the idea that he just hits the slider T on me. He's like, dude, stop cheating over. <laughs> what do you think I'm going to do here? Anyways. Grigor Dimitrov, I know you're very passionate about him. Is this a new Dimitrov era, or was it a year-long resurgence? The most angry I've ever gotten is when someone told my brother he looked like Grigor, and I was like, you don't. You're not handsome in the way Grigor. They both have the box head, so I will acknowledge that. And honestly, Eric's hair is aged better than Grigor's, but that's a discussion for a different time. The reason I'm so passionate about Grigor, it has nothing to do with his looks, surprisingly. It has to do with the fact that his 2023 is the most underappreciated good season we saw this year. Gil Gross, I ask you this. Right now, overall ELO ratings, where does Grigor Dimitrov rank? All right, really high. Uh, now, look, ELO has a recency bias intentionally, sure. so a lot of it is about the recent stuff, but I think Grigor is probably seven or eight. Seventh overall. He's fifth in 2023 specific ELO. He was healthy for the first time in a really long time this past season. And the physicality he brings, the fluidity in the corners, it's just a joke. You have to be so disciplined as well to face Grigor Dimitrov because his on-the-run forehand has replaced Bautista Agu as the mortal best on-the-run forehand we have in the sport. Like, he knows he's baiting you into trying to test him, into hitting that on-the-run forehand. And he's going to pass you with it every time. He's hitting his spots perfectly on the serve down the season's home stretch. He was top 25 in both hold and break percentage with for a guy with a one-handed backhand. You just don't see very frequently uh, on these lists. Grigor played his best tennis certainly since 2017. I would argue maybe at times better tennis than he was playing even then. He was remarkable this year. And I really hope it's not a one-season thing because the lost generation is lost. Like Chilich, <laughs> Nishikori, Ranich. Dimitrov's the guy, Luca Pui, you know, Dimitrov's the last stand. But yeah. I, I, I hope he's able to carry it over because I think this level is sustainable for him. And if he sustains it, he will stay in the top 15.
Yeah, and and the draw luck is likely to be better. People have pointed yeah. that out to me recently that the draws. Just he played qualifying really it on the grass courts this year, like qualifying. He was still a top fifty player, and he had to play qualifying on a grass court event. That's crazy for a guy who ends the year top ten in Elo. Yep, and he kept playing Zverev over and over again, which was a bad matchup. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, I don't. Do I trust him to stay healthy? Honestly, it pains me to say it. I, I don't. That's usually how it's gone with him. Where there's going to be where there's going to be an injury, but I think if he does stay healthy, um, he can. You know, I I also hope I'm I'm hoping, um, but you know, again the the injury stuff is kind of what concerns me. Last Let, question: More likely to make a Slam semifinal in 2024, Demon or Grigor? Grigor. I agree with you, which speaks yeah. to how good he was this year. I want his grass results to come back. I know he's a former I Wimbledon know. semifinalist. Yeah. yeah, they're gone. They're just, they are. Yeah. All right, Karen. No headband rule kills him. <laughs> um, he was really good at the majors yet again when he was healthy, when he was able to play. It, it's an unbelievable stretch for Hatchinov in best of five. Uh, but he did have this big injury this year. He's still 15 in the world. That's pretty impressive. Talk about a guy. I think it's opposite of Dimitrov. He has not been an injury-prone player throughout his career. He had this big injury. My question is, is he due for positive regression in the health department? And uh, and therefore, Hatchinov kind of is set up really nicely to have a, a big year next year. I think if he's healthy from start to finish, he might have won most improved this year because he was one of the eight best players in the world whenever healthy. And it was one of the sneaky storylines, but he won his first title since 2018. And to get mm -hmm. that off his back, just a little victory that means a lot on top of all the slam success. That's the feather in the cap that really means, you know what? Yes, I was injured, but I had the season I wanted to have. No one can say, oh, he won the Paris Masters and nothing since. Like, you just can't say that about him anymore. And he's always been that good three out of five set. This is a guy who, like Elisa Mertens, was a lock to at a minimum hold seed at the majors since he's been 22 years old. And, you know, again, another guy who, by the way, turns 28 next season. Like, we're getting into the tail end of his prime. Not the tail end, but you, got, you know what I'm saying there. Tail end of his 20s, certainly. Mm -hmm. I think next year, Karen Hatchinoff gets an A for me if he sustains the top 12 level, if he's back in that tour finals hunt for a full season, because I think that was always his ceiling. And I think he hit that to some extent this year. His serve, his forehand will dominate you if you are lesser than him physically. Like It was a very good year for Hatchinoff. Yeah, I think he's gotten so much more consistent on the forehand, though, because yeah. he's not trying to be a big forehand player. Yeah. Um, like, I know he's 6'6", and he has a lot of power, but I think you realize, like, look, I'm more fit than everybody I play 100%. and I'm so consistent. So let's use that. I buy the slam stuff. Like I, yeah. I know it, it feels surprising when he's in a major semifinal. I, I think it's real. I think he can keep doing it for a bit. I mean, do you want the stats? Like I could look them up. I promise you I'm right on this Monday match analysis listeners. Yeah. I would say of the last 15 slams he's played, I would be shocked if he lost before the third round more than twice. Like that is, he is going to hold seed and get to the money rounds. And, you know, sometimes he'll play that weird quarter match, which was really ugly, but guess what? He freaking won it. And like, that's what Hatchinoff does. He, he it, sometimes it's a little sloppy, but he's going to end up in that third, fourth round of a major. And as we've seen, we're in the get yourself a shot, at, a bite at the apple. And he does that as well as that. 16, Francis Tiafo. What was the issue this year? Like, 
I, I don't, okay. it, didn't, it didn't feel, it didn't feel great um, for, for Tiafo. He won in, he won in Houston and he won the, the, the grass court title in, um, in Stuttgart, right? Did I, did I butcher that? I'm going off memory. No, I, I just disagree with your premise that wait, wait. he had a bad year. No. Okay. I'm saying it didn't feel good. I don't think the year felt good because there were too many bad weeks and I don't, I don't think you go through a year with Tia. I think it's better to lose in the third round and to maybe not win a title than to have the year that he had. Um, he, he collected a couple of titles. I just think there were, there were too many bad. After the U.S. Open semifinal, I think Tiafo wanted to stay in the top 10. That's it. Hatchinoff, by the way, made third runner further in 17 of his last 22 majors. So I feel pretty accurate about that stat. You are right in the sense that the hope was for Tiafo that he could capture that lightning in a bottle from the U.S. Open, sustain that at every event he played throughout the course of the season and put together a top 10 year. And dare I say the results that a Tommy Paul or a Taylor Fritz put together this season, that he's the third lowest ranked of that group would have been a terrible take coming off of the U.S. Open last year. He was top 25 in both hold and break percentage. Like His return of serve this year was better than it has ever been in his career. And he's just hitting the block forehand return more successfully than before. If you leave a second serve hanging, he just snaps into it with a rifle of a forehand return more comfortably than ever before. Yes, it wasn't the most significant clay court event, but to have success and win a title on a clay court, have success now on grass courts, hard courts in his career as well, it translates across surfaces like Francis Tiafa leaving the top 20 doesn't feel feasible for a five-year window now. And what is his ceiling beyond that? I think that remains a relevant question. I think what's so remarkable is even though this was, dare I say, a status quo season for Tiafo, you still don't come out of it questioning that there's more upside for him to tap into because he is that gifted athletically, his hands, his feel, how he crafts points. You just, those intangible skills you can't fake. I like B plus would probably be my grade for Francis Tiafo's season. I don't think anything went wrong, though. Like, I think for him to sustain this level for the season from start to finish, yeah, there was a dip towards the end, but we hadn't seen him put together this complete of a season before. And so I do think that at least was a question answered this year. That's okay. why I disagreed with your premise. Okay. No, it, it, you're right. I'm glad you checked me on it. I mean, it is the highest win percentage that he's ever had in a year. It's the only time he's ever won multiple titles in a year. And by the way, by by quite a bit, his career high in 2022 win percentage was 58%. This year, he was up at 65%. Really um, good in first rounds as well, which is something he had not been early in his career. Yep. And that's a good point. Uh, you look at the majors, lost in the third round at the first three, and then at the U.S. Open, he made the quarters. Draw opened up. He lost to Shelton in the quarters. Like, yeah. that was a thing where I didn't even feel good about it. Like, I guess that that, that means... That your he's point, setting the bar high. To your point, he made a freaking U.S. Open quarterfinal. Like, it's not as though he followed it up with a first-round loss. That's really good on paper until you mention he lost to Shelton. And you're like, right. that did put a damper on it because it was all set up for, like, you know, again, a blockbuster, Tiafo Djokovic, let's roll the balls out, let's do it. Now, again, the Shelton-Djokovic matchup we got certainly delivered. Um, but you're right. It's like Ben stole that shine at the end. 
yep. in what was otherwise a great like you said a third rounds in a quarterfinal. That's our top twenty five year unequivocally for Francis from start to finish. Yeah. Okay. Good. Good perspective. And yeah, I guess the U.S. Open part with Shelton, the fourth set was six two, and it felt like a pretty disappointing fourth set. And the path to get there was Tien, Offner, Manorino, Hijikata. So that's why, like, even uh, even something right. that felt it felt on paper quarterfinal cool just didn't feel that good. Uh, so that's kind of my you. overall feeling with with Tiafo. Seventeen Ben Shelton. Man, some of these uh, transitions have been so nice. Um, not not patting myself on. We've the had back. seventeen shots at it, so well, you're about to shoot a luck. couple. It's all luck. <laughs> I just feel like the the flow is just working. I'm trying to think which ones you'd want back. Maybe the Runa one. <laughs> uh, no. <laughs> uh, world number seventeen. My Monday match analysis recipient of newcomer of the year, Ben Shelton, who uh, has not followed a traditional path to the top 20. He tore it up in challengers right away, spent a you know very short period of time uh, in that kind of 200 through 100 ranking group because he just kind of graduated really quickly. And then he kind of graduated the 50 to 100 range because he made the Australian Open quarterfinal at the start of the year. Also unconventional that he didn't win back-to-back matches at an ATP-sanctioned event um, until he had two major quarterfinals, a U.S. Open semifinal. But uh, he did finally have that kind of best-of-three-set run in, in Tokyo, won his first career title. It was a 500. Look, I mean, all things considered, you can't say it was a consistent year for Ben Shelton, but who cares? I mean, this was his first year on tour, and his highlights were immaculate. My question is, is this trajectory sustainable? Because he's gone up really fast. And the, I I think the big question is not, is he going to get to the top at some point? It's what, is it going to continue to be kind of that upward rocket ship trajectory? That's a great question. And the idea of him dividing his ranking, you know, in fifth by a fifth, once again, next season, that would get him what to like four in the world. That feels a little bit extreme, but it's not that he spent a short time on the Challenger Tour. That's where I would push back when you, your description in his ascent. And look, this was a guy who very late in his career became one of the top prospects of his generation. It was a guy who at the national level here in America didn't really dominate at all. And then once he was 16, 17, that's when he got his first big result, of course, coming off of a freshman season that saw him play five singles in his college lineup. He wins a futures event. He makes the finals of Kalamazoo. Of course, the winner of that UST Boys 18s National Championship in Kalamazoo gets a wild card into the U.S. Open. He took all those steps that oftentimes the best prospects, the Tiafos, the Michael Mose, the Taylor Fritzes, et cetera, in America make. It just all came very suddenly and very late in his career. And he parlays that, you know, Kalamazoo final into an NCAA singles title. And what did that singles title afford him to go full circle? It afforded him wild cards into challenger level events here in the United States in 2022. And why I push back at your description is it's not that he spent a short time at the challenger level, nine months at the challenger level. That's typically how long it takes for guys who are going to ascend to the level Ben has to get through that ranking. It's that it all came on hard courts. It's that it was indoor hard courts in Indy, indoor hard courts in Charlottesville, Champaign, some outdoor hard courts success in Fayetteville as well. His success has been very one surface dependent. And look, he spoke about it openly. 
going to Australia for the Open was the first time he had left the country in his life. Those clay court events weren't just his first pro clay court events. It was his first time in Europe this past spring. And so to see him struggle should be expected. It was a learning experience, no doubt, for Ben moving forward. I do think that Tokyo success was critical in that post-U.S. Open run because that kind of reaffirmed everything you had seen flashes of throughout the year. That was, hey, dad's back in the coaching box. I'm finally comfortable. I'm going to play my best tennis in a non-major week. And I think that was huge for him going into 2024. Do I expect a leap forward from him? Yes. Do I expect a ranking leap forward? No. And here's what I mean by that, and then I'll shut up, I promise. I think he will win maybe six times the amount of clay court matches he won this season. Maybe even seven. And by that, I mean I think he could win seven clay matches next year. That would be a massive improvement for Ben. That would really help his ranking. I also think he's probably going to double his win total on hard courts, but probably get him halved at the slams throughout the course of the year. And so the points are going to come in really different ways for Ben in 2024. But I think if he can sustain his ranking and even more particularly do it without a big major result, doesn't that mean he had a a better year? And like, isn't that a step forward? A less, a less fluky, more sustainable year. The, the U.S. Open run was that's really... That's Ben's autobiography, or not auto, but that's his biography, by the way. I just gave you four minutes on all things Ben. There's his journey. Yeah, you did. It was... It was uh, I, I don't saw know. it in I your don't face. Know. You're like, is he going to keep going? I was like, I was like, why is he talking about Fayetteville, man? We don't need to talk about Fayetteville. <laughs> I mean, it's just... Um, now I lost my train of thought. Um, That's what I have. No, I, I, I do agree with you ultimately, though, that it's it's going to be a less quirky, strange season. I, um, but he did look the Australian Open run. I, I would label that as a little bit fluky. The draw was wonderful, but I think the the level that he brought to New York, he he deserved a major semifinal with that level. He's going to be one of the best servers in men's tennis, and if you just take that and that, you know that delivers a certain floor which is a pretty high floor and then you look at what else he has to offer actually a, a dangerous forehand who can threaten on the plus one um and, and an athleticism and ability to move around the court and and his volleys got much better uh it, it's just about yeah probably fine-tuning things mentally some footwork stuff on the return uh some footwork stuff defending the backhand it, it's going to come together i i think from a ranking standpoint I would give it a hold. It sounds like yeah. you agree that a top 20 finish would be a success for Shelton in just his second year on tour. Um, and then I think maybe the year after, like I, I'm looking at maybe next year as maybe his big year where he makes more of a sinner like jump that we saw this year. Um, so we can end it on that with Shelton, but let's also uh, just get into this little uh, petty <laughs> argument that has nothing to do with anything. Give me a player because you're you're pushing back on the idea that he didn't play, a, didn't spend a lot of time on the Challenger Tour. I want you to name a player who you think would fit that characterization. Didn't spend a lot of time on the Challenger Tour. I can give you two right off the top of my head: Alcaraz okay. and Runa, who both okay. proceeded through that in about nine months. Love it. Eight okay, months. like Holger went from futures at the start of 2021 to winning, I think, four Challengers that season. Like it was okay. a remarkable jump. Well, Ben Shelton in his challenger career, 49 matches. Alcaraz, 44 matches. Okay. 
Okay, Runa, I bet, is going to be higher than both of them. I think Let's he see. will be higher yep. as well because he played like 100 matches in 2021, which was ridiculous at the time. 65 matches. Yeah, but still, that okay, like, my point is made. <laughs> I no, feel my, validated. My, my point is made. I just proved you. He uh, spent the minimum amount of time. Right, yeah. like you can't really spend less time than that on the challenge. But, I'm but not that's about. But I'm saying, I guess you are correct. I seed your point, but my additional point is that's what the best ones usually do. Like that's I like agree. nine months. That's in that again. That he has fewer than Runa, but more than Alcaraz. I'm saying that at my next party. That's a great stat. I like that one. <laughs> Cameron Nori, eighteen. Very simple question. Uh, are we sure? And again, this is second half focused. I mean, the story with Nori, very simple. Uh, he, he had a phenomenal start to the year. Nobody was more impressive at the ATP Cup. Uh, and then he went to February, had a great golden swing. Even Indian Wells was pretty good. Then you can make kind of a, a you can put a stick in the sand at the Miami Open. And from there, it just wasn't as good. Are we sure he wasn't playing through something? That's my question for Nori. You hope almost because, boy, did his game just look solved by just about everyone he played. And the case in point was that Arnaldi match, I believe, at the U.S. Open was who knocked him out where he was just kind of helpless and couldn't hurt anyone in near with nearly the sort of success he did the year prior. And people kind of know the spots he wants to hit on serve. He loves to hit that slice T on the deuce side, loves to hit that slice wide on the ad, set up the first forehand, whatever it may be. You know, again, does he have the ability to absorb, redirect on the backhand better than you would expect with that technique? Absolutely. But it's really hard for him to generate elite pace off of that wing. And I think people know to press that wing. I think people know if you press the Nori forehand with pace as well, that's how you keep him honest because he will leave that ball short for you. And I guess it makes me wonder how much of his success was just predicated on this 15th month run of insane fitness we saw out of him i mean from the end of 2021 to through the end of last season 2022 not three there was no one fitter than cam nori on tour and again part of this is the rise like runa sinner alcaraz they all have higher ceilings than nori and they're continuing to ascend and their peaks are now higher than his is this just who he is moving forward 18 in the world's a good spot to be in I don't know if I see a pathway to him back to the top because like what's his game plan against even a Tommy or a demon hour or a rude who it all feels like can match that physicality now as well. No, I mean, there are definitely limitations for Nori. Uh, the, I, I think being a top 20 player is a success for him. Uh, just 100%. writ large, but I guess the, the premise of what we're talking about right now is he was much less than a top 20 player for the latter eight months of the season. He's going to need to play a lot better if he wants to be in the top 20. I, I just think while, while I agree with you, you know, you, you pointed out his limitations really well there. I think it kind of went beyond his limitations and even his strengths were no longer strengths. I mean, he was making a lot of bad, easy mistakes, kind of gift wrapping unforced errors on a, on a pretty regular basis down the stretch there, which kind of takes away the whole point of, of Cam Nori as a player is that he doesn't give you anything easy. So that's why I, I, there is a percentage of me who's wondering, okay, like, was he just physically not right? Therefore mentally not right. Had zero confidence, you know, it was just a, it turned into a miserable situation and it wasn't the real Cam Nori. That's kind of 
as you said, that's what you you hope uh, for Cam Nori and and his success. Yeah. Uh, again, the question is, what does he get back to this offseason to find his rhythm? What is the missing piece? Because I do think part of this year was about trying to make life easier for him moving forward, finding some weapons, shortening some points so that he doesn't have to be this fit and rely on that so consistently. I'm searching for an answer. Like that's the thing is it doesn't stand out in an open way of, oh yeah, he's always had this as a weapon. Maybe just double down on this, you know, to say double down on fitness is just a tough ask. Yeah. 19 Nicholas Jari ends the year on, on a career high. He's uh, not as young as you'd think. I was surprised he's 28 years old. I I thought he was a little bit younger, Um, but I've been loving the tennis I've been seeing from him all year. I mean, ever since, uh, I guess I first noticed probably in Santiago when he won the title in his home city, which was a really special moment. Uh, But then from there, I mean, every time I watched him, I'm like, yeah, I I like this guy's game. He's good on the forehand, the backhand, his serve is a weapon. He he's willing to move. He's willing to work the point. He's not just a ball basher. Uh, Yeah. He's a little bit, he's a little bit slow. He's a big guy. Um, are we, my question with Jari is because I don't think he's really gotten any kind of moment in the sun or any sort of mainstream discussion. So this one's for you. Are we talking about him enough? Well, I want to address that. I love the phrasing. Uh, you know, that question is always near and dear to my heart because the question is always who should be talking about him to make it enough or not enough. I want you to describe his age again. You said what? He's a little bit older than you would expect. Yeah, I thought he was younger. Okay. Nicholas Yari, five days younger than me. So I just want to say thoroughly, <laughs> 90 minutes in, go fuck yourself. Because that really hurts me. Like five days, not like a, this big gap. No, he's five days younger than me. Um, so, ouch. Uh, that said, is he the modern day Isner? Like some scholars would argue maybe. And I know Results it's a little wise? bit more clay centric. Yeah, I mean, he was really good across surfaces, by the way, this year. Only four and three on grass, which like, okay, the season's not that long. But 15 and nine on clay. Nine, or excuse me, 15 and nine on hard courts, 19 and seven on clay courts. His power translates across surfaces. And to some extent, when you have that serve, life is just going to be easy for you. The thing that you pointed out that I think is really important to note in his success, it's not just a serve and nothing behind it. He's most comfortable bashing away from the baseline. It's actually more probably in a Chilich model than a John Isner because that serve and volley component's not there as frequently. But Man, when Yari gets a cut on the forehand, he just has you frozen. And on clay courts in particular, the weight of shot, it is very, very difficult to deal with. It also gives him a little bit more time to get into his return of serve, take a clean cut Mm -hmm. there. I think he's pretty solid on that backhand wing as well. You mentioned it. He's a little stiff. Everyone over 6'6", not named Medvedev or Zverev, is a little bit stiff. Like, that happens. I think he's got young, spry legs. Like, I think he's really hit the fountain of youth of late. And I think, again, it's a resurgence, dare I say, a reinvigoration for this young man. Can't emphasize that enough. Um, Again, worth noting, he had a doping suspension. It kept him out and knocked him out of the top 100 where he had been sitting pretty steadily for about a year stretch there. I didn't expect this ceiling coming back out of him. I thought, sure, maybe top 50 guy. But again, sustaining this level for me from him next season, that would be you'd be in the A range on the report card. 
I do think it's sustainable, if that answers yeah. your question. So are we talking about him enough? I mean, we're talking about him on this show, and you and I are really two of the only talkers we have in this business. I don't know. <laughs> um, probably didn't talk about him enough. Certainly belonged on a most improved ballot. Yeah, yeah. I Good good call with that. Um, I think he used the time. Like, I don't have the specifics of this, but just recalling watching Jari from a younger age, I think his serve technique while his serve was still big because he's a big strong guy I, I think he really cleaned things up in that department he has a much more fluid service motion now and uh he's not as much of a ball basher in terms of i i think he plays the percentages a lot better now um he, he used to kind of just he, he used to make a lot of bad shot selection decisions on the court and um he's got a little bit i think he's more aggressive than kevin anderson Kevin Anderson was actually a pretty passive player who That's liked to just trade. Comp. But but yeah. I think that would be my preferred comp. I know you threw out Isner and you threw out Chilich, but I think he's a slightly yeah. more aggressive forehand version of of Kevin Anderson. Yeah, Anderson was like he liked to grind a little bit more than you would think for a guy with that size. I also yeah. think he knew like I should become you know, Kevin Anderson played like he was coached. I don't know if that makes sense to you, but it does to me in the sense it was like, no, it's time for me. to. <laughs> he plays like you play where it's like it's time for me to move forward. I'm moving forward, even if it's not the greatest approach shot. Yari's a little bit more patient in that sense. Like, I agree. I think he's like patient in the sense that he will wait to tee off on a forehand before moving in because there's nothing he likes more than teeing off on forehands. So I, it's that same baseline centric. It is, though, a little bit more aggressive from the ground. You're accusing me of being a net rusher? No, I'm accusing you of playing like you're being coached. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, it's like uh, this is the shot I should hit because this is the right shot. Which you got. It's a good thing. You hit a lot of right shots. Thank you. Um, all right, 20. Here's here's an interesting one. You go on bear. Mm. I'm glad this finally happened. Mm -hmm. He had that big run. In in Hala a couple of years ago, I think he he's always passed the eye test. He's always beaten top ten players a couple times every year. I mean, like last year he started the year beat Daniil Medvedev, and then didn't have a good season. Uh, it's always been it's always been he's a February November guy. Yeah, yeah, you could say that. I mean, what a what a run post U.S. Open this year. The consistency is is the thing that stands out. It was a quarterfinal every week post U.S. Open, which is what you want to see. Look, he doesn't fit into a lot of molds with the way he plays, right? Like, I don't even know who you can compare him to. But he, he is a special ball striker. The timing, the precision, uh, the ability to take time away off the ground, be offensive, and he's got that great lefty corkscrew serve, the slice serve. Um, what's my question for, for Hugo Ambert? Can we get some consistency? Can we get a guy who is going to settle into his career and not have the fluctuations of top 30 outside top 100 back into the top 30. I mean, it's been, it's been very up and down so far. How would you define consistency for him in 2024? Look, I mean, have a grass court season where you're a factor because that's the surface that suits him. So it, that part needs to be there. Uh, I think the, the hard court results should be at his talent level on a top 30 level. Like he should be someone for me who, when the surface suits, which is, you know, the, the quicker and lower bouncing stuff, he can be a top 15 player. 
And then I think on the more medium stuff, I think he can be a top 30 guy. Then on the clay, let's at least be a top 50 guy. Like that's how I would look at his game. He's going to be more surface dependent than most of the rest of the tour because that's how his game operates. I agree with you in the sense the key about the clay court season, don't let the bottom fall out from beneath you. Like got to get me four wins. Four and let wins. me interrupt for a sec. Please. He had some clay challenger results this year. And yeah. that is when I knew that he was on in moving in the right direction this season is when, oh, wow, you're actually winning matches on clay challenger level. That means something for him. I don't think the comparison between him and Nicholas Jari would be unfair either. Two guys who use their serve to dominate, who uh, dominate, use the forehand in particular as well as their second weapon of choice. The backhand is more than a placeholder. They're comfortable hitting this slice. Umber's a better mover than you would expect as well. He'll snap an on-the-run forehand by you before you expect it. Really good at hitting behind opponents as well. And speaking of things people didn't talk about enough down the season's home stretch, how about the race for the top-ranked French player? Like, Umber ended up winning. He ends up boxing out Adrian Manorino right in that last week of the season. Again, a really fun race between the two. And yet, Arthur Fee, Luca Van Asha, two teenage Frenchmen, who are as exciting as uh, prospects as have come since the Songa, Gasquet, Simone Monfi generation. Like, they stole the headlines. I agree with you. I think for Umber, consistency means status quo, means falling, not falling outside the top 32 next season. Because when you can serve the way he can and just keep yourself competitive in matches the way that he can, particularly on quicker surfaces, you should be one of the 32 best players in the world. He's shown that twice now before the age of 26, that he can be that good throughout the course of the year. You're in your prime now. It's time to steady. Like He's one of those, again, original next-gen guys. You're like, all right. It's kind of your time to be top 35 in the world. Like, if you're going to be seated at slams, here's your five-year window. And I think a year of consistency from him means, again, certainly not falling out of the top 100, but just sustaining and being in this yeah. range. Because I don't think top 10 is his ceiling. I think this is about right. Yeah, I agree. I mean, th there are limitations defensively, which is, by the way, I think he got better. I A, a lot Jer better. Jeremy Shardy came in and... Mm -hmm. Again, this is just observation. I haven't heard anything, but I, I'm wondering if if some of the instruction was, let's move back a few feet on the return. Let's move back a little bit when you're being attacked in a baseline rally because you're not able, you're not going to be able to defend from on top of the baseline. It just doesn't happen. You can't cover the court. You're fast enough to play, you know, to cover the court. It's not about being a defensive player, but we have to be able to move into the corners. And when you're always trying to take time away, like you're Caroline Garcia, there's just, there's going to be no defense there. By the way, another thing I want to say, if I could redo answering your question, um, I stand by what I said, but also like you look at his record against top 20 players versus uh, his record against players ranked outside the top 20. And it's basically the same win rate. Mm -hmm. Another thing that would spell consistency for Umber, like another benchmark, is when you play guys outside of the top 50, win the matches. Um, because he, he wins plenty. He punches up above his weight plenty enough. But now it's beat the guys you're supposed to beat um, who are ranked 50 spots lower than you at this point. Let's move on to uh, Francisco Serendolo. 21, interesting one. He's got uh, a top five forehand on tour. You agree? 
I mean, I'd have to go into the it, list. It, it, it's, it's in the tough. conversation. Look, it's if in you the present, yeah, if you bring him to the table, it's not going to be like, look at his shoes. Like he's out. It'd be like, no, 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 you're dressed well. You you deserve a spot in this club. We're not sure yet if we're going to have you at right. the table. And and I think that's the I think that's fair because it's a loaded category. Like a lot of the best players in the world these days just have phenomenal forehands. But the the question that I have for Sarindolo is: Should he be better? Um, <laughs> because because I I love that forehand so much. I do see, as I just mentioned, I do see most players with his caliber of forehand and and a backhand that's solid enough. It's not a weakness. Most players in that position are a little bit that they're they're inside the top twenty with some comfort, with some ease, but. For Sarindolo, I'm not going to say it. I think one part of his game is anchoring him down. And I, I do wonder if there's really kind of room for improvement and some easy gains to be made there. Well, what's the part of the game? It's his serve. He's got the height. He's he's not short. And he's got He's not the tall, worst. but he's like six foot. What's he listed at? I'm going to guess six one. Let's look. But if... <laughs> If you're asking me, do I think I'm taller than Francisco Sarandolo? The answer is yes. <laughs> I think that would be my guess. Is I feel like yeah. he's like six one listed. So he's six one. He's listed yeah. at six one, which sure I think it's accurate. But I think he has. Let's see ace rate in the top fifty. I bet he's. I bet he's one of the worst. I'm I'm sure that he's one of the yeah. worst. No, uh, I, it, but... it's not. It doesn't set up his forehand. He needs a yeah. serve. He's third worst, man. He's with yeah, Davidovich Fakina and Demonor and Murray. Those three are above him and Musetti and Alcaraz. The only two below Francisco Sarindolo are Sebastian Baez and Yoshi Nishioka. It's like, who doesn't belong in this picture? not who you want to be picture? hanging out with. Yeah, no, that's, who doesn't belong that, in this picture? You know, again, he got into the club and then they showed him that stat and they're like, dude, come on. That's who you're <laughs> rolling with. Like, you guys all got to go. Um Racket talent wise, yes, he should be. Like he's a classic. If tennis was ground stroke games and not sets with serves, yeah. he would be higher in the rankings. And part of it is you watch his brother Juan Manuel, who's just a grinding lefty, and you just like imagine their practice sessions growing up, where Juan Manuel is ten feet behind the baseline firing up lobs, and Francisco's just firing forehands at him. And then mm -hmm. when he gets angry, it's out of the air, fired at him, whatever it may be, drop shot, forehand slap. And again, you see the combinations not only there, but clearly he grew up with a brother who's a lefty with how he hits his backhand, which he's comfortable extending down the line, if comfortable extending through cross court. I think he's pretty good on the return of serve as well. A guy who had so much challenger success on clay, whose breakthrough tour level result came on hard courts in Miami and a guy who has had grass court success this year as well. He is a very good, a very talented tennis player. You got to be able to make life easy for yourself. If the return is coming at his feet or deeper than the service line, he just can't get into that big forehand. He can't start dictating. And he is a guy who I don't think it's unfair to say his focus wavers throughout the course of matches. Like you can get a really yeah. good 20 minutes out of him. If you get a really good three and a half hours, it's because there was 30 minutes dispersed throughout that three and a half where his brain went away. And like, again, if you're of the guys we've talked about, Nori, Yari, Umber, Sarundo, the last four. I, I would say he has the highest ceiling of that group remaining. 
But those guys can make a uh, Yari and Umber in particular just can make life so easy for themselves. And you're right. If you're not doing that on serve, it's a long 11 month season. We won't debate it. I think Umber has a higher ceiling. Um, but interesting. Serundolo, yeah, that's kind of where I'm at with him. Like, I think he won't, he has an opportunity to go up, but I'm really just watching. By the way, good point. He can compete better sometimes. I think he can be a better competitor uh, in matches sometimes. Um, but also, like, technically, yeah, it's just the serve anchoring him down. We'll see if it gets better because he has a chance, you know, more of a chance than uh, Nishioka and, and Baez do, right? Yeah. Okay, I'm going to start... Let me tell you, if Sarundalo's forehand is in the conversation, so is Sebi Baez's. I just want to say that if we're making tennis ground stroke games, like some scholars argue Baez is better than Schwartzman. I know the results aren't there, but on paper, like the the way he's able to drive through a court, we yeah, we're we're gonna get to him. We're we're gonna get to him. We're we're gonna skip some names, okay? So we we just did we've done the top twenty. Um I we have to get to Nadal, we have to get to Kyrgios. Can we do Um, rapid fire of the skips? Because like all I have to say about Manorino is him (laughs) shaving his head is a testament to that when Nadal comes back, he should come back bald. Like (laughs) it's just look at what Adrian did once the hair went away. Look at his second half of the season, which was stunning. Like just stunning. Anyways. That's all I have to say on him. Fair enough. We'll see if Manorino can can keep it going. Um, he's he just learned how to be really offensive, and his hands are so talented. And his racket technology and the way he produces his strokes, like he's he's figured it out. It works. It's great. It's real. It's spectacular. Um, and I mean, and yeah, that's it's, all. <laughs> it, that's all. I mean, it's it's very surface dependent. <laughs> He's 35. He just had the best season of his career. Good yeah, what, yeah, what a stud. Yeah. Uh, I was also going to skip Talon Griekspor, but we want a rapid fire. Uh, here's my question. I did write out a question for everybody. I know. Uh, Talon Griekspor, is his ranking correct? I say yes. So here's why I really like that you wrote out that question and why I side when we're rapid firing through, because the answer is yes. And you watch him hit a forehand again. I'm letting him into the club. He's not at the back table. But man, can that guy smack a forehand? It works across surfaces as well. Extraordinary racket talent. Like he doesn't have outstanding size. It's not going to jump off the screen the way some other players were. But Talon Griekspor is one of the 32 best players in the world. Exactly. Like great job developing your game. Yeah. You've you've yeah. come very close to maximizing your talent. You're not that great a natural athlete you don't have the opportunity to have a huge serve you're not tall enough you're not really strong enough but like you've developed all the skills props to you kudos to you good good player for like young guys to watch honestly. that's the best case scenario for you is you become talent greek sport i've decided that's your player <laughs> because actually like watch him play and tell me i'm wrong absolutely totally right uh <laughs> yeah. 24 is a guy who we shouldn't rapid fire mm-hmm. it's sebastian uh Corda who had real highlights this year. Uh, Queens, he looked phenomenal. Adelaide, Australian Open, he looked so good. He had injury issues, which coming into the year, he was one of those guys where we would have probably been like, is, can he stay healthy? Is he gonna, is he gonna stay healthy? And, and he didn't. So it's not, it's not like we talked about Hatchinov earlier in the podcast and we were like, well, oh, he got injured. That rarely happens. That's weird. Corda's a guy, when he gets injured, it's more like Berrettini, where it's like, again? Um, 
So are we kind of in the same place heading into next year? I feel like my question is, is this the breakthrough year? But I feel like the answer is the same that it's always been. If he stays healthy, then yes. It's a great question. It's the question. I predicted him to end the year as the top-ranked American in 2023. He falls short of that. That he was as injured as he was, and he salvaged as high as 24 in the year-end rankings kind of speaks to what that ceiling is. And why this year is successful enough, it's in the B range, but it's successful enough. He was one of the five best players in the world. Not one of the, like, 15, 20, 25. No, he was one of the five best players in the world in January. When he was at his healthiest, when he was at his most fit, match point against Djokovic in the Adelaide final, beats Medvedev, you know, again, at the Australian Open as well. We saw what Medvedev went on to do in the month of February. Sebastian Korda's talent, his ability to strike a tennis ball, his ability to play when healthy is unquestioned at this point. And that the only question remains health, I actually think is a good thing for a guy who still is in his early 20s. But you can't fake health. Like That's the one thing he's never had, even when he was a junior. And so it's the same question. If it persists after next season, now it becomes a serious, serious concern. He has done some good work on his body. He's gotten stronger. His legs are bigger. He's added miles per hour on his serve, which was needed, I think, as a result of the strength work he's done. So he's doing the right things. The only thing I'll add to what you said is the forehand can lose him matches. It's a good forehand, but sometimes either under pressure or if it's just not his day, He's got no control over that wing, and he can really gift wrap matches to his opponents. So that's something I'd I'd like to see him clean up, especially because, you know, the technique looks pretty good on his forehand. Um, maybe there's something that I'm missing about his no, technique he, that makes it erratic. He loves to hold his ground on that baseline, right? And sometimes it just jams him a little bit, and it's the miss hits. Uh, you're absolutely right. That's the side where he will jam or he will spray. But it's not a technique problem. I agree. I think it was a hold the baseline problem. Try to get out of matches a little quicker to stay a little healthier. Yeah. And something with nerves also. Like it does happen under pressure. I think every scouting report on the tour says big moment. Let's make him hit forehands. I know it's not backhands because no, I mean, it's amazing. It's so good. It's so and it's and his slice. Sorry. Go ahead. Talk aesthetics. Can we just talk aesthetics? I think it's the most beautiful two hander since David Goffin. I go, my power rankings goes Djokovic, Zverev, Korda, Basvaretti. And trust me, if you've seen Nishesh Basvaretti, a Stanford sophomore, formerly petite AS, 14 under champion, hit backhands, you're just like, are you Novak Djokovic? Like, what's your deal? Like, how do you do that? That's crazy. Um, like, that's the list, though. Like, Korda is on whatever, if it's the backhand club, he is not only in the club, he's at the table. 25, Jan, uh, are we rapid firing him? Yeah, let's rapid fire yeah. him. Jan <laughs> Lennard Struff. This is, this is turning into something, like this is kind of mean now, right? We're deciding who's rapid fire. It is what it is. Jan Lennard Struff, um, is he on the ascent or, or was this, because he's 32, this was an amazing story. Uh, comeback player of the year candidate. I went with Monfils, but it was a kind of a close call. Uh, is Verev also in the mix for that? Um, he had the Madrid final. That run was amazing. Uh, really good on clay, really good on grass, less good on hardcore. That's kind of true throughout his career. Is he on the ascent, would you say, or not? Or is it kind of like a, I don't know, he's 32, so that's hard to say. 
Yeah, it's tough to call it an ascent. I will say for Jan Leonard Struff, what he did from outside the top 100 to inside the top 30 in like six weeks, you just don't see that just about ever unless it involves a massive slam result. And so capture that in a bottle in the Hall of Fame. It doesn't deserve a plaque, but like there should be a book somewhere that says in March to May of 2023, Jan Leonard Struff in four and a half weeks did this because that's remarkable. Do I think we will be discussing him in the 2024 edition of the show? I do not. Yeah, fair. I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if that's the case. Another guy who I don't want to rapid fire is 26, Alejandro Davidovich Fakina. Do you still have hope? Uh, I've been calling him the most talented guy outside the top 30 for a while. Now he's inside the top 30, so I can't keep saying that. Uh, now <laughs> He's the now most maybe... talented guy in the top 26. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> Look, j- just because the, the first thing I look for when I'm evaluating t- uh, tennis talent is how fast you hit the ball and how fast you move. Um, if you really boil it down to that level, um, Davidovich Fikina moves as fast as anybody and has really easy natural power off of both sides. Uh, but I, And he's working on the mental stuff and he knows that's an issue. And, and the serve doesn't help him at all either, but he actually cleaned up the technique of it this year. Do you still have hope for him? I mean, Davidovich Rokina is, what, 24 years old? I have hope in the sense that I think his he has not hit his career high yet. I think he looks at what Demon Hour Tommy Paul did this year and said, I can absolutely put together a season like that. I could finish a year in that 9 to 15 range, which, again, athletically is at the very least where he belongs. The technique is pretty pure as well. It's, again, stringing together 30 consecutive minutes of his best play and doing that consistently match over match, week over week throughout the course of a year, even through successes Davidovich Fokina might have had this season. You look at the record for the 24-year-old in terms of first matches he played at events this year, 19-6 and overall. That's actually much better than I expected it to be. 9-10, and though in his second matches and it's losses to guys like Halis, Chechenato, and, you know, again, Greek Spur, Van Asha. You just can't lose those matches. If mm-hmm. you want to be a top 15 player, I have hope because again, even through the inconsistencies, he's been top 35 now for a couple of years consecutively. And I don't think he's hit a ceiling, which maybe is a testament to just how athletically gifted he is. And I, I do think he wants to figure it out. And that's why yeah. I'm going to say, no, I haven't lost hope. I, I do think sometimes like there are guys like like a Bublik for all of Bublik's flaws, right? Does he want to figure them out? Like, I don't sense a desire for Bublik for all of the, the weaknesses that he has. I don't sense a desire for Bublik to be like, yeah, man, I, I got to do better. This is the year. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't think Bublik looks himself in the mirror and is like, I need to be better than this. No, like he's fine. He's cool. Um, And uh, I I do think Davidovich Fakina wants to improve. So I have faith that he he can. 27, Lorenzo Musetti. uh, Just someone who everybody stopped kind of talking about because his results have stagnated. He had a really good clay court season. But I, I also think that's indicative of where we're at with his game. He has not developed the serve forehand weapons. Uh, so my question is, what is his potential? Um, I'll kind of, I'll start by answering it where I I think it's like more of a top 15 potential 
I'm, I'm inclined to say top 15 more than I'm inclined to say top 10 long-term. Yeah. I mean, again, another guy athletically as gifted as you're going to find on tour fluid on any surface, moving in and out of corners. The hands are real. He's worked on an ability to move forward, impose those hands by volleying and taking time away, using his speed to beat you to the spot. I actually think his serve has gotten better. The numbers don't really bear. No, I I agree. I I think it's gotten better. The forehand technique's still a little floppy. And he goes after that forehand with more consistently than I think he once did. But yep. on quicker surfaces, it's an issue for him. That said, it's worth noting, Lorenzo Musetti could have played the next-gen finals again this year. He opted out of the event, but still 21 years old. And yep. it's tough now because his peers are Sinner, Runa, Alcaraz, Shelton now in that mix as well. Like That's the group of guys he was hanging out with for a little bit. And now they've kind of all supplanted him with these massive results. And like, again, we're two years removed from him being up two sets to love on Djokovic at a slam. I know he couldn't close that out, but a guy who can do that is going to be a top 15 player in the world at some point. So much like a Davidovich Fokina, I still would be holding my stock at the very worst. I see him as a a Gasquet type player. It's just, is the game moving away from Gasquet? If you plopped Gasquet as a young player now, would he he have the career that he had? Uh, I just think the serves are bigger. The forehands are bigger. There's more aggression in the game right now. And I I do think that Musetti is a little bit bit of a stuck in the past in that. But he's a better athlete. Like, Gasquet moves like Luigi. Like his feet are always shuffling and he's like running up the, it feels like if I I told you Gasquet runs, like he's always running up. (laughs) And like, I'm, he is faster than people think. Like his first step is exceptional. He's 38. He's he's 38. I don't think. I know, but I'm saying like Richard Gasquet was never accused of being one of the best athletes on tour. I think Lorenzo Musetti will at some point be in that conversation because there is a fluidity there that is just remarkable. And so, I'm banking on that athleticism, the shot-making ability on the backhand wing. His one-hander is not a liability in any sense ever. I think he can figure out the forehand. I'm betting on Musetti. And I also okay. think people are shorting him, and that's why I'm like, you know what? If you're going to sell your stock, I will buy it because I think it's going to get higher. Yeah, which is probably a good call, especially because, again, it, this wasn't just a bad season. This was just a season where... Clay was good, and the rest wasn't good. Um, Musetti's market isn't like Denver or Austin, but it's like, you know, the suburbs of Indy. It's like Carmel. It's like, that's a really good place to live. What? Okay, next. Uh, <laughs> uh, 28, Baez. I don't want to rapid fire some of these guys, but just because of time, uh, yeah, we've, let's, we've, we have to. We've hit it. Yeah, we I must. It. You uh, don't want to go three hours? No. We can put the Crack Records brand on it. Yeah, that'll that then yeah. nobody will bat an eye. Yeah. <laughs> Bias has been on tour two years. This is impressive stuff. Two years he's been on tour. He has four titles, two runner ups. He also has twenty five first round losses. Is it because I'm wearing the Michigan gear that you're giving me the signals so I could steal them from you? Because I appreciate that. Um Yeah. Why so streaky? That's the question. Why so streaky? Because his serve, like that's kick serve on a on a hard court, is just it, it's bad. Like it it sits up for opponents to attack, and he's getting better at it. His ability to explode through forehands on the baseline is special. The backhand is not a liability at all. He's quick, not as fluid as you would think, 
But he is he's a good mover on hard courts, exceptional mover on clay courts. And he serves in volleys on clay. Like his ability to go kick serve, serve and volley behind it is just the last thing you would expect from him. I mean, I already think he's one of the 20 best players in the world on clay. He got better on hard courts. He won Winston-Salem this year, a massive confidence boost. Again, Baez is very good. I don't know if he can ever be top 15 because of his floor, uh, his ceiling on a hard court, but he's a really good player. I'm excited to watch him next year. Yeah. I think things are are going well for him. You know, the the streakiness doesn't concern me. He's really, really young. Um, he's had some injuries. I just think, you know, mentally, hopefully his confidence can just be a little bit less uh, fragile and, and more more solid. And uh, I think things will come with Baez. So much fun to watch. Uh, 29, Felix Ojeali-Asim. He was very, very close to not being seated at the Australian Open, but he saved it by winning Basel. But my question for Felix, like, let's just look at last year. What the heck did we just watch? I mean, what what was your read on what we saw there? I'll rapid fire through this one. I, I'm really hoping it was injuries because I saw enough Laver Cup on the serve, the forehand firing when he was back in comfortable indoor hardcore environments that he was very lucky. The floor did not fall out beneath him because there was a world where he might have fallen out of the top 50 and he did enough to salvage his points for the year. I'm really hoping it was health related and that with more match play, we'll see his serve forehand return to its prior heights. He's always had very good February, so the opportunity will be there for him early in the season. Yeah, he had a bad serving year, and he's a great yeah. server. So mm-hmm. we know that's going to get better. Uh, there's no world in which it doesn't. You know, I, I, I would just look, the, the same things that I've been talking about Felix forever, about some of the weaknesses and some of the reasons why I don't really think that he's going to get to the elite. I mean, obviously this year I didn't do anything to dispel any of my thoughts on that. So I, I don't think he is ever going to be an elite baseliner, but I know he's going to rebound with the serve, and uh, he's probably going to be in the top 15 mix come the end of next year, in my opinion. Agree? Fair. Um, okay, 30, Tomas Martin Echeverry. Um, he's probably the guy on this list who uh, I have the least to say about. I mean, it was a, a really good year. Um, he's got He's got a good serve. He's a solid ball striker. There's not a lot of... Uh, wow factor in his athleticism or frankly in his his variety um but like can he can he be kind of like a karen hatchinov like player if he gets really fit and really mentally strong maybe that's the wrong comp kasparud 0.85 watch him play closely and the comparisons are very very striking the patterns yeah the patterns he tries to play with how he wants to dominate with his forehand he can strike a forehand. His match in Asia against Rude was actually a really fun one to go back and rewatch if you haven't. I think they went to a third set breaker, if memory serves me correctly. 25 to 30, uh, five, 25 to 40. That feels like the Echeverry range, which, by the way, again, it's a really good range for a player to live with. You're going to make a lot of money playing slams throughout the course of your career if that's where you live for the majority of your prime. I don't see a top 15 ceiling for him yet, but again, discount Casperud, I think it is a title we would all ask for. Yeah, I think he's just a little bit more offensively inclined and not as quick. Um yeah. and and he's taller. Um he's got a pretty he's got an underrated serve for a guy who came up with clay court results. Sure. That's the top 30. We have two guys who are not in the top 30 who we must discuss. Uh let's start with Rafael Nadal who uh, 
only played the Australian Open last year, or, um, or I guess I should call it this year still. Also had a, a tough second half after being the best player in the world in the first half of, of 2022. He was still, last year, the Monday Match Analysis Player of the Year, which is, last year was not a long time ago. <laughs> that said, with the way he looked kind of physically in the second half and then another injury and obviously the age um, and saying that this year is going to be his last. My question for Nadal, are the expectations really zero? Because I think there's a lot of talk that, okay, like don't expect anything from Nadal. Well, yes and no. The expectations are zero in the sense that everyone's just going to celebrate him being back, being healthy, being wherever he needs to be mentally, physically to be competing on court because he deserves to go out playing some sort of match. Even if he may not have the ceremonial, I won another French Open ending that it felt like he was destined to finish with. I say that and I want to contradict myself because, look, injuries have always played a part of Rafa's career. And. I can't say it's completely unexpected that this is how things end, that just physically he can't put get himself to a point where he can compete the way – I don't want to just say he is accustomed to competing. The way Rafa has to compete to be there on court. If we've learned anything about Rafa, he's a man of routine. He is a man of habit. He is a man who will give 110% of himself in every match that he plays, even if there's not 110% of his body to give. And – in the sense that there's no expectations, I don't think fans expect that of Rafa returning to court. I just think they they want to see him healthy and compete. The problem is Rafa only knows one speed, and that's the speed he will want to compete at. And I just think Rafa won't put himself in a situation where he's going 11 and 13 during the course of the year. I don't even think he'd want to Andy Murray it and just exist in that 30 to 70 plane that Murray's been in over the past two years. I think for Rafa, it's boom or bust. Am I concerned it might be a bust? I absolutely am. But that's not, I don't hold him to any expectations for that. I just want to see him play one more time. Yeah, or well play said. on his terms. Right, well, well said. I mean, everybody's rooting for health so that both Rafa and Rafa's fans can can have a great experience this year uh, with the season, and and you know can kind of get what Federer fans didn't get, um, unfortunately, which is a nice like, you know, a, a, a long time to kind of appreciate the end while the end is happening, knowing the end is happening. But I don't really think I don't think the expectations are are zero. I think he's way too skilled for that. Where if he's healthy, he's going to win matches. And I mean, Uncle Tony said yesterday that you know, Rafa still wants to win Roland Garros this year. Like, I mean, that's going to be how it, how it is going to be. If you're asking me, like, do I think it's realistic? I think he can surprise some people, some people who expect, you know, him to just not be competitive at all. Now, would I ever, um, what would need to happen for me to get to, I actually think that he can like win a major this year if he's healthy. Look, I, I, I don't think the serve is, like if we get to a tennis conversation here, I don't think he's going to move that well this year. He still has a lot of great offensive capabilities, including one of the great offensive forehands of all time, um, throwing his movement aside. I just think bolstering up the serve to a point where it's putting him in great positions consistently 
has been such a struggle for him throughout his career. I don't expect that to change this year. Like if you gave him Novak Djokovic's serve, just if we're speaking in hypotheticals, I actually think I would be in a place where I could say, okay, I think he can contend for majors. So I think he's that skilled, even if the movement is diminished. The fact that the serve just is probably is not going to give him that, uh, that cushion makes me think that he's going to be someone where if he's healthy, he's going to make quarterfinals, he's going to make semifinals, probably is not going to be able to get over the hump. Yeah, again, I need to see how he's moving because if he's moving at all well, you're absolutely right. On clay, his patterns are effective. We've seen that for 20 years now. And to think that they wouldn't be effective at this point, if they weren't effective, I don't think he would be on court. I do think it's kind of a what came first, chicken or the egg scenario because Rafa's going to want to be competitive in everything that he plays. That's just who he is. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm fascinated to see his return to court. And again, mentally, he's still Rafael Nadal. So I'm sure there will be some results for us to discuss. Yeah. I haven't made my top 10 prediction yet. I haven't thought about it, but frankly, I, I don't know if Nadal is going to be in or not. I, I have to sort that out in my head. Um, I just want to throw that out there that as of now, I don't know. Let's go to Nick Kyrgios. We're not talking about him because <laughs> he is polarizing or he's, you know, a, a voice that is controversial and people like to talk about like, no, this is a tennis conversation. And I like to hammer that home and make that very, very clear. Wimbledon finalist two years ago, a guy who won 70% of his matches two years ago, when you win 70% of your matches, you, you generally finish the year in the top 10 if you play a full season. So that's how good he was. And that's why he needs to be talked about as a guy who he could have the personality of Kasparud and we'd be talking about him uh, for this show. I just want to make that very, very clear. By the way, Root's personality, underrated. Underrated, I agree. Underrated. Uh, but he, he does it to himself. Like he's the guy who he like calls himself uninteresting three times a year. Anyway, um, Nick, bad year of health. The question is 2022. The year that I just alluded to, the year where he he gave it his all uh, and he worked hard in the gym and he competed hard on the match court. And when he lost to Hachinov in the U.S. Open quarterfinals, he was breaking all of his rackets because he couldn't believe he lost because that's how badly he wanted to win, right? A guy who never really threw in the towel like he had been known to do early in his career. Was 2022 all we're getting? Was that the year where we saw Nick Kyrgios in full bloom and that's it? Or or might we we get that again? That's the question right now. Well, it's fascinating because looking back and incorporating what we saw in Breakpoint, you could tell he felt like that 2022 U.S. Open was the window for him, that that was the event with the summer he had had combined with the Wimbledon success that had kind of all perfectly come to this crescendo of, okay, this is my opportunity to win a major, and that he wasn't able to capitalize on that momentum, nor really ride that momentum at all in 2023 towards any results because of the injuries. Like you can only imagine what that does to one psyche. At the same time, you do wonder, 2022 was the most consistent run of success he had had since breaking into the top 100, really, and starting his career. And certainly felt like the highest level we had seen from him at any point in his career to date. Because his body held up. Like, that's yeah. it. He, he just did the work. He traveled with the physio and worked hard. And that's that was the result. 
Yeah, and he says that's what he's been up to of late as well. Now, again, we won't know until we see him un- until we see the play unfold. But like we've talked about with a lot of guys, what makes Nick's life easy? It's that he can win points on his own terms always if his serve is working. And that ability to dictate translates across the quick surfaces, which we know Nick is the only surfaces Nick will play. Hard courts, grass courts. He doesn't want any part of the clay court season. In theory, yes. But unfortunately, it feels like it's always in theory with Nick Kyrgios, minus that six-month window we had in 2022. So I feel more confident that if he – well, let me ask you this. Who ends the year ranked higher, Rafa or Kyrgios? I would put my money on on Rafa. I think right now that's a I great can't bet question. The, I agree. I'm like I, I was going to say I think Kyrgios is going to be ranked higher, and I was like I don't know if I could do it. It's not like I'm. Here's the thing, and I'll answer my own question now. I'm confident in Nick mentally. I think okay. he's reached a place in his career where he uh, appreciates tennis as a, the sport more and appreciates the position that he's in more and has kind of found that it, it's actually fun to try hard and to try to win matches. I'm, I think he's matured mentally. I think he's there. Physically, I just can't say the same. I'm not confident in him. Um, not because he doesn't want it bad. I just think he beat up his body f- for years Fair. and years and years by not getting any sleep and drinking a lot of alcohol, and he'll be the first one to tell you that. And that has repercussions right about now. When, when you're 28 years old, 29 years old, this is where, this is where you've sabotaged yourself um, and you've robbed yourself of the ability to have a long career, potentially. So that is why, that's where I stand with Nick. Like, I actually don't trust his body to cooperate, um, unfortunately, because I think his mind is ready to cooperate. To go full circle here, the way you said drinking lots of alcohol is why you're not a drink slash smoke guy. I just want you to know, like that's that that cements it. Um, I agree with everything you said. Like it, it will be fascinating to see each of them come back. It's funny. Like I have no doubts about Rafa mentally. I just think physically, again, if Rafa can't do what he needs to do on court, I don't know if he wants to be out there just to lose matches. Like that's just fundamentally not who Rafa is. If Kyrgios is physical, physically ready to go, we're going to see him on court at some point in 2024. And it'll be a fascinating race. Again, sound off in the comments. Who do you think ends the year ranked higher, Kyrgios or Rafa? I can't believe how good a question that is. Uh, like, I'd like to throw them in after two hours. Dude, if, if I'm a sports book... Ooh. You have to you have to throw that up as like is a Is it even special... odds? Both plus 125? I don't know what it is. What I do know is... A lot of people would throw action on it because it would just be a really fun thing. Oh, that's a I mean, six-unit Brett Connors play, which is exactly what the what the books try to do. Like they want, they're looking for those juicy, like special, uh, special props, and it's a good one. This was a good one, my friend. Um, I think people are going to enjoy this. We were able to uh, to get through um, the most Tomas Martin Echeverry talk on any podcast. Uh, off-season mm-hmm. podcast in the tennis space other than the mini break pod. And I'm proud of that because he deserves it. Um, yeah. And I know I'm, I'm highlighting him, but um, I think that's true for everybody. I'm glad we were able to uh, have a good conversation about all these guys. This was a wonderful show. As always, I appreciate you having me. I appreciate you coming on the mini break podcast during our off-season coverage where we have conversations that are often this length, unfiltered uh, quite frequently. And so, again, to have the opportunity to hang out with you the Monday 
Sunday match analysis crew. Always a pleasure. So thank you for having me. Thanks a lot, Krusky. Always a pleasure. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. Yeah. New New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.